Um, we're going to finish up our, our talk about um, detecting the wavelength of light today. We'll talk about interferometers to detect wavelength. Uh, before I do that, I wanted to go over a couple things that came up on the homework. So let me pass your homework back. Um, the first thing is the uh, first two problems involved a Fabry-Pro cavity, and the results were worked out in the notes. So people pretty much were steered in the right direction, but I don't think anybody got the full derivation quite perfect. So I wanted to go over a couple details that uh, were commonly missed. The uh, first problem asks you to find the response of the cavity. I don't know if it asks for the transmitted field or the circulating field. Um, it's a function of was maybe it's a function of frequency or is a function of a uh, Let's see. I wanted to derive the circulating field is a, uh, over the input field. It's a function of cavity length. So we were assuming that there was an input field that was just somehow generated inside of the cavity that could be generated by some material that has gain, and that's where the input field is coming from, or it could be transmitting through the end mirror, and the amount that gets transmitted we're calling E in. Okay, so what's very helpful is if you draw a diagram that shows all the fields at the different points. And if we need to consider where that input field is, because if you have a field here that's propagating to over here, the fields are going to be different on the different sides of the cavity. There's going to be a phase shift between them due to propagation. So if I consider the input field, let's say, just after this first mirror, and maybe I consider the circulating field there as well. So that circulating field is defined just after this mirror. And in my diagram, you can see some space there, but I'm really representing this as immediately after reflection from that mirror. Um, then I can derive the circulating field in terms of the input field. And most people did that OK. The circulating field is going to look like uh, the input field divided by 1 minus r times e to the i phi, where phi is the round trip phase shift to kl. So that's the circulating field here. The transmitted field. I'll use the black. These are all kind of light. Better? OK, so the transmitted field is related to the circulating field. And a number of people, virtually everybody, said it's the transmission coefficient of this mirror times the circulating field. And it's only partly true. Certainly, this circulating field has to transmit through this mirror. And so its amplitude is going to be reduced by the transmission coefficient. But it also acquires a phase shift going across this cavity. That phase shift is e to the i kl. Okay, and we have to include that phase shift in the analysis. Now, if you had defined your circulating field over here at this point, then you wouldn't need to include this. Okay, so the expression for the transmitted field is going to depend on where you've defined your circulating field. Okay, and 
the expression for the circulating field depends on where you've defined your input field. If your input field is over on the left, but you've defined your circulating field over here, then that input field has to propagate a distance L, and so it acquires a phase shift before it adds to the circulating field. So you need to define where the fields are, you need to describe where the fields are defined in order for your expression to have any meaning. And then if you did draw something in your diagram that suggested where they were defined, you needed the phases on your expressions to be consistent with that. Okay, so that was the first problem I saw. Um, the second issue I saw uh, was a little easier to understand or a little bit more expected. And that's the, uh, I think the expression I had in the notes for the transmitted field had a factor of i in it. I think there was some confusion over where that i came from. So I wanted to describe that now. If you have a mirror and you have light going in from either side, then you can describe the reflection coefficient of that mirror. We usually call it r. And the Fresnel reflection coefficient, if you recall for reflection off of a dielectric, looks like n1 minus n2 over n1 plus n2, going from index 1 to index 2. And essentially what that tells us is if we're going in the other direction, the reflection coefficient is, in, is the opposite. So reflection coefficient here going from left to right we'll call r, then from right to left we would call minus r. Okay, the transmission coefficient is the same in either direction. So you can describe a mirror by a reflection coefficient and a transmission coefficient. And then you can keep track of which direction corresponds to positive and which direction corresponds to negative. That's not always easy to do, um, particularly if your reflecting surface is not just an interface between two dielectrics, where you can look at the Fresnel reflection coefficients and figure out which side is positive and which side is negative. Frequently, this is a dielectric stack. There's a lot going on in there, and it's not clear uh, which side should be positive and which side should be negative. And in fact, it depends on where you define your uh, your reference plane. So for example, if our mirror is this black line, I can describe all my equations with respect to this dotted line here. And if I choose that dotted line to be a quarter wavelength away from the mirror, and then I consider the fields on the left reflecting from the mirror and the fields on the right reflecting from that dotted line, then a field E2 going in at this dotted line acquires a phase shift of pi over 2, going from here to the mirror. And then it acquires a phase shift of pi reflecting from the mirror. That's the minus sign. And then it acquires a phase shift of pi over 2 coming back. And so the net reflection has a phase shift of 2 pi, which means the reflection coefficient can be described by r as a positive number on the right side and the left side if I consider them reflecting from different surfaces that are half a uh, quarter wavelength apart. And in practice, for a physical mirror like this, that's probably fine, because usually you don't care about the microscopic positioning of the mirror. But if I do that, then the reflected field, I have to consider that the, going from left to right, the input field at this mirror produces a reflection, or a transmitted field, that's advanced by a quarter wavelength. And so the transmission coefficient 
times the input field plus or times a quarter wavelength of phase shift. The quarter wavelength of phase shift is I. And it works going in either direction. So if you define your reflection and transmission coefficients in this way, the reflection coefficient is always positive. The transmission coefficient is always imaginary. So we use R and IT, and we never need to keep track of which direction is positive and which direction is negative. Okay, so typically this is the way I do it, and it's a common way to deal with reflection and transmission from a mirror, because it doesn't require you to keep track of specifically what's going on inside the mirror. That's where the factor of I came from in this expression. Any questions about that or about the homework in general? Okay, so we'll go on to talk about interferometric measurement of wavelength. So last time we talked about um, dispersive measurements of wavelength, using dispersive elements to separate different wavelengths um, primarily an angle, and then measuring the angle of, a, of an output ray and relating that to the wavelength that that ray had. Okay, so you can also use interferometers to discriminate against wavelength because the interference condition depends on the phase difference of the beams. The phase difference depends on the path length difference relative to a wavelength. So different wavelengths will have different interference conditions. And so we saw this a little bit with gratings. With gratings, each tooth produced a diffracted wave that had some path length difference from the other waves that were being combined in the diffracted beam. We said the more teeth that were illuminated, the better the resolving power of the device was. So the more teeth that are illuminated, the more total path length difference there is between the interfering beams. And that's the case for interferometers as well. The greater the path length difference between the interfering beams, the greater the resolving power. And it's trivial to set up an interferometer that has extremely large path length differences. On the order, certainly on the order of 1,000 wavelengths is no problem. That corresponds to about a millimeter of path length difference. And on the tabletop, you can go as great as a meter of path length difference without too much difficulty. And so a meter would be something like 10 to the 6. Um, 10 to the 6 wavelengths and will give you a resolving power of about 10 to the 6. So the trade-off of having good resolving power is having small free spectral range, meaning any given interference pattern you see could be generated by a number of different wavelengths um, with a separation, a wavelength separation of the free spectral range. So you can only measure wavelength differences that are less than a free spectral range, but are more than the uh, resolution of the instrument. So let's look at a simple interferometer. This is, as shown, this is a Mach Zender interferometer, although this is functionally equivalent to a Michelson interferometer, where these mirrors would reflect the light back to this beam splitter, and the outputs would be at this beam splitter. Here in the Mach Zender, the light gets split by this first beam splitter and recombined by a, a different beam splitter. So the two paths travel different 
distances, L1 and L2. And so the interfering beams at the output will have different phases. Okay, so if we consider a beam that comes out here, it's reflected through the first beams, or it's transmitted through the first beam splitter and reflected from the second. So the input field gets reduced by the transmission coefficient and by a reflection coefficient. These are for the two different beam splitters. And it gets a phase shift due to traveling a distance L2. So that phase shift is k times L2, or 2 pi L2 over lambda. So this term right here times this is the output beam that's traveled along path L2. The output beam that's traveled along path L1 has a very similar uh, expression. It reflects off of the first beam splitter and transmits through the second. And it travels a path L1. So if these two beam splitters are identical, then it doesn't matter which one it reflects off of and which one it transmits off of. Either one will produce a reflection coefficient of R and a transmission coefficient of T. So the path that travels along L1 we can write as RT times EN times a phase due to the path length L1. Okay, so the output at this point here would be the sum of the two waves. They have different phases, but they have a common amplitude. Okay, so I can write it as this expression. And now the sum of two exponentials produces a cosine. And so as the path length difference L1, well, without even describing the trigonometry, if L1 equals L2, then these two terms are identical and they add up to be twice as, you get uh, this amplitude times 2. Right? If L1 and L2 are a half a wavelength different, then these are pi out of phase and they subtract, produce 0. Right? And for any value between those two values, you get some amplitude that's between 0 and twice the amplitude of a single beam. Okay, and in fact, the output uh, intensity, or the output field varies as cosine of uh, k times delta L. So if we just consider the simple case of measuring at what path length difference we have constructive interference, then we can say that the difference between the paths has to produce a phase difference of an integer multiple of 2 pi. Or the path length difference has to be an integer number of wavelengths. If that's the case, this term will equal that term. They'll add up constructively. Okay, so if n is the number of wavelengths of path length difference, we can write m as the number of wavelengths of path length difference. But there will be constructive interference for different wavelengths. So one particular wavelength might produce a path, might have a path length difference of m wavelengths, whereas another wavelength that also adds constructively could have a different integer number of path length differences. 
Okay, so if we require delta L equal M lambda for constructive interference, then adjacent Adjacent wavelengths, or the minimum separation of wavelengths that give that both give constructive interference, call that delta L, would obey this relationship. So if you decrease the wavelength by enough, you, you can fit one additional wavelength in this path length difference. And you would again see constructive interference. Okay, so you might be measuring the interference condition here whether it's bright or dark, and using that to determine say, the change in the wavelength. But if you have, let's say you have two closely spaced wavelengths, um, if they're separated by less than this value, you'll see different intensities for the output when you illuminate the interferometer with those two different wavelengths. If, they if they're separated by exactly this wavelength, you'll see the same intensity at the output regardless of wavelength. Okay, so we can solve, we can relate these two different expressions for delta L and find what delta lambda has to equal. So m lambda is equal to m plus 1 times lambda minus delta lambda. That's m lambda minus um, delta lambda minus m plus 1 delta lambda. The m lambdas cancel. And I get yeah. Um, m lambda plus 1 lambda. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so I get this relationship for delta lambda, the minimum resolvable wavelength. And now I can simplify this by, for m, plugging in delta L over lambda. And in this expression, if the path length difference is much larger than a wavelength, this 1 becomes negligible. I can write this as lambda squared over delta L, or yeah, lambda squared over delta L. And that's called the free spectral range of the interferometer. It's how much the wavelength can change before the interference pattern reproduces itself. So an interferometer is useful for distinguishing different wavelengths that are less than this free spectral range apart. Now, one of the ways to use a two-beam interferometer like this is by scanning the length. So consider our expression here for the output field. 
if I factor out the average phase, then I'm what, what I'm left with is e to the minus some quantity plus e to the plus some quantity. And that gives me a cosine term. And that's what's written right here. It's got an average phase times a cosine term. This is the output. You can see it varies sinusoidally with delta L. It has a phase, which I'm not really going to care about, because when I measure the output, I'm measuring the irradiance of the output. So I take the field and square it to get the output intensity. And it varies as cosine squared of the path length difference. So clearly, the largest the output can ever be is the input irradiance. So I normalize this by the input irradiance. And I have an expression for the output irradiance as a function of delta L. Or if I know delta L, it's as a function of the wavelength. So one of the ways to use this is to scan one of the mirrors. So let L1 be fixed in space. So the length of one path is fixed. The length of the other path is scanned. So the mirror is scanned with a speed of v. So if you consider a Michelson interferometer, it looks like this. This is mirror 1. This is mirror 2. What we're doing is we're just moving mirror 2 linearly. The, uh, a speed that is constant. So that is given by this expression. So the path length difference is going to change as a function of time. So the intensity that you see depends on the path length difference, and that's going to change as a function of time. It's going to have a cosine squared dependence. And we can write the output intensity divided by the input intensity as cosine squared of pi times vt over lambda. And so if we use the fact that cosine squared of theta is uh, it's 1 half 1 plus cosine of 2 theta, can write the output irradiance as a function of the, uh, relative to the input irradiance as 1 half plus 1 half cosine of twice this quantity, 2 pi over lambda. times Vt. So this whole thing in cosine is some phase the phase of the, uh, the cosine term. Frequency is defined as the time rate of change of phase. And so clearly that is 2 pi over lambda times v. That's actually the angular frequency omega.
So this is a time-dependent output irradiance that has a sinusoidal oscillation at a frequency of v over lambda. So I would see a modulation on the output uh, signal that's at a frequency of v over lambda. If I know v, I could infer lambda. Right? So if I know how fast I'm scanning my mirror, I can measure the wavelength of light that's going through this interferometer. One of the best ways to measure the speed is to send in a known wavelength, observe the modulation frequency, and use that to infer V. So that's typically what you do. You take a known wavelength, you use that to measure V, then use that value of V to measure an unknown wavelength. No. Uh, those, those compare the output frequency to the reflected frequency and look at the Doppler shift. Uh, it's, it's similar, except it's using its own initial frequency as the known frequency. And it, when you do that, then the known frequency cancels out. It doesn't matter what frequency you're using. Here we have an external, external wavelength that we're calibrating against. So let's say you have some input beam into your detector and you want to know its wavelength. So you can set up one of these scanning Michelson interferometers with one fixed mirror and one that you're moving. You measure the output irradiance on a detector and have some electronics that can measure the frequency of the signal on that detector. So that time series that you would see might look something like this. It's, it's sinusoidal. And it has some frequency components that are unknown. So what you can do is you can send in some known wavelength. So maybe a Heaney laser with known wavelength. And essentially use that known wavelength to calibrate the speed at which you're driving this at. And then you can imagine blocking the input or the reference and sending in the unknown, and assuming that the system is operating at the same wavelength, you could then infer the, or, I'm sorry, if it's operating at the same speed, you could then infer the wavelength. You can also send both of these in simultaneously. And you measure the two different frequencies, and the ratio of those frequencies gives you the ratio of the wavelengths, and the, the, the speed cancels out. So the wavelength of the unknown light is related to the wavelength of the calibration line by the frequency of the calibration signal over the frequency of the uh, modulation from the unknown signal. Okay, so when you do that, you're typically limited in how far you can move this mirror. Eventually, you run out of range and you have to reset it or move it back. So if you measure n total fringes, n would be the distance you move the mirror divided by the wavelength, or in this, this configuration it would actually be twice the distance you move the mirror. So we're going to call delta L the path length difference from the beginning until the end of the motion of the, the mirror. 
And if you detect n fringes, then the relative change in wavelength that will give you one more or one fewer fringes would be 1 over n. Okay, if you detect 100 fringes, then you know the wavelength to a part in 100. If the wavelength varied by 1%, it would produce an extra fringe or one fewer fringes, depending on whether it was larger or smaller. Okay, so if you're just counting fringes, then your uncertainty in the fractional wavelength is 1 over n. So the resolving power was the inverse of this. It was lambda over delta lambda. So the resolving power then is n, which is delta L over lambda. So the resolving power depends on how far you move the mirror. The further you move it, the more resolving power you have. While it's moving, yeah. So while it's moving with a constant velocity, then delta L, delta L is actually twice, should be a little more specific about that. Delta L is uh, twice the distance you move the mirror because the round trip path length difference. Well, you could certainly, it's a, I mean, I don't know if there's, if there's anything to say what's typical. Um, you can certainly move this by a few hundred microns using a, a piezoelectric transducer. Um, you can do that very compactly and essentially have no moving parts. It's more like a vibration of the transducer. You can put this on a translation stage and move it by a few inches, so a few tens of millimeters. Or if you had a real precision measurement you needed to make, you could put this on some sort of rail and move it over a meter or so. So the speed, the speed can be pretty small. In fact, this is equivalent to just counting fringes. And one of the ways you can do this is not by moving it at constant velocity, but by just moving it. Having a micrometer on a thumb screw and turning it and counting the number of fringes. Right? And as you turn it, let's say you have a thumb screw that's calibrated so you turn it, what the thumb screw says is one centimeter, you count the number of fringes of your Heaney beam, and then you repeat the measurement, you count the number of fringes of your input beam. You get the same thing, you just replace the frequency here with the number of fringes that you counted. Okay, so that's a, a more manual measurement, whereas uh, moving the mirror could be automated a little bit more readily. Um, but the idea is that the further you move the mirror, the longer your baseline and the better resolving power you have. Okay, so that's a two-beam interferometer. Uh, Fabry-Pro interferometers are also commonly used for wavelength measurements. And the last homework, we saw some of the uh, features 
of a Fabry-Pro interferometer. So we saw that the finesse is a function of the mirror reflectivities. And here I'm allowing both mirrors to have some non-unity reflectivity. In the homework, R1 was equal to 1. So the expression looked a little different. Uh, the free spectral range we found in the homework as C over 2L. And that was if you plotted the intensity coming through the interferometer as a function of frequency of the light, that's how much the frequency needs to change for the intensity pattern to repeat. So the free spectral range we defined before in terms of the wavelength, you can also define it in terms of the frequency. Right? In either case, it's how much that parameter needs to change for the uh, detected signal to repeat. Okay, so two frequencies of light that are separated by more than this uh, can't be directly compared using a Fabry-Pro interferometer. If the frequency of two components of light is less than this, then you can scan the Fabry-Pro length and essentially move this, uh, this comb back and forth and observe how much you need to move the mirror to see the two spikes due to the two different frequencies and relate those um, to how far you move the mirror. So the finesse and the free spectral range combine to give the, the uh, line width the line width is the full width half max of this intensity pattern, and that's um, the smallest frequency spacing that you can resolve. And it's given by the free spectral range divided by the finesse. So a high finesse interferometer gives better resolution. If you had a particular interferometer with, or an interferometer with particular mirrors such that your finesse was defined and you wanted to build it to have the best resolution possible, what should you set the length to be? Should it be long or short? It should be long. The longer it is, the smaller the free spectral range, the smaller the line width. So the line width gets smaller, but the free spectral range also gets smaller by the same amount. So the range of frequencies over which you can measure also gets reduced. Okay. So it's no different than like using a magnifying glass to look at text. Right. As you magnify the text, you can see smaller and smaller features, but you can see less of them. Right. So you're trading those two things off, your range and your resolution. So as you increase the length, let's see. Let me try to draw the frequency response starting from zero. Some response that looks like this. You plotted this in your homework. Um, this distance is the free spectral range. This is twice the free spectral range. Every time 
the frequency increases by one more free spectral range, you get another peak. Okay, now if you um, relate the free spectral range to C over 2L, then as you start with a very short interferometer and you increase the length, the free spectral range decreases and a couple things happen. One is the spacing decreases. And typically you're not measuring zero frequency. If this plot continued out to terahertz, you'd be measuring up here at terahertz. Many, many free spectral ranges away. And so what you'd see in the terahertz window, you still see the same pattern repeating every free spectral range. But as you lengthen the cavity, um, the spacing would get closer and the whole pattern would shift. Um, if you decrease it by half a wavelength, then this peak would shift over to this peak and the spacing would change. And so typically what we're concerned with when we set up the interferometer is the spacing, not the absolute position of the different lines. A Fabry Pro interferometer is not a good way to measure absolute frequency because um, there's lots of different frequencies that can transmit through it at any given length. So just saying you get power transmitting through at a given length doesn't tell you what frequency that light is. But if you have two closely spaced frequencies, so let's say your light has two closely spaced frequencies, then as you change the length of the interferometer, if you change the length by half a wavelength, this peak will move one full free spectral range. And at some point, it will coincide with this peak of light, and that will be transmitted. And at some other time, it will coincide with this peak. So if you can sweep it the length linearly in time, and then plot the power as a function of time, what you will see at the output. So let me show you how a typical experiment would work using a scanning Fabry-Pro interferometer. You take an interferometer like this. You might have, let's just say we're trying to measure the frequency spectrum of a laser. Send that through the Fabry-Pro interferometer and detect it and plot it on an oscilloscope. Okay, so plug that into channel one. And we'll let channel one, we'll call that the y, y-axis of the oscilloscope. Now, this might just be the laser coming through. There might be some material here, a sample that um, that shifts or absorbs different frequencies or, or puts some spectral characteristics on the laser. Now what we need is some way to move one of these mirrors. Typically that's done with a piezoelectric transducer. You can get them that are shaped like tubes. So you mount the mirror on one of these tubes. The light can go through it. And as you apply voltage to the tube, it's going to change its length and move that mirror back and forth. And you can get typically 5 to 10 microns of motion out of this. So you can scan through a full free spectral range. Every time it scans through a half a wavelength, these transmission peaks will shift by one free spectral range. Okay, so, so let's apply a ramp voltage 
from a function generator, some voltage is a function of time. Let's apply that to our PZT. And then let's also plot that over here in the oscilloscope on the x-axis. And maybe we sync the oscilloscope. We trigger it so that it's only measuring, let's say, the, uh, the rising side of that ramp. Then the oscilloscope measures as a function of time. But that's essentially scanning, measuring the length of the cavity, or the change in length of the cavity since the length is changing linearly in time. And if the frequency spectrum of this light has some structure to it, so this is what the spectrum looks like, then as this transmission peak scans across that frequency spectrum, we'll see the power on our detector reproduce that, that shape. And we'll see that spectral, that mapping of the spectral frequency onto the oscilloscope's time series. And if we continue sweeping it until the next free spectral range sweeps across this, we'll see the pattern repeat. Right. Now we know, as long as we know that we're continuously sweeping during this time in the same direction, if we see the same structure twice, we know that that's the system repeating. And so we know that um, this distance corresponds to one free spectral range. If this x-axis, which physically is measuring time, is getting related to cavity length, and the cavity length is getting related to frequency, then this, the frequency represented by the distance between repetitive peaks is one free spectral range, or C over 2L. So you get out a, a meter stick, and you measure the distance between your mirrors, and that tells you what the free spectral range is, and it allows you to calibrate this graph. Okay. And then you can measure the separation of those peaks as some fraction of the free spectral range. And if you know the free spectral range, that tells you the frequency separation of the peaks. And if you know the frequency separation, you can convert that into wavelength separation. As follows. So the speed of light is the wavelength times frequency. You can differentiate this expression um, and you can write this as um, Delta lambda over lambda equals delta F over F. So your 
relative resolution and wavelength is equal to the relative resolution and frequency. So if we know the free spectral range in terms of frequency, C over 2L, and we know the wavelength of the light, then we know the frequency and we can convert that to the free spectral range in terms of wavelength. It's lambda squared over 2L. Okay, so we could either relate this distance to a frequency C over 2L, or we could it, relate it to a wavelength of lambda squared over 2L, assuming we knew the, the center wavelength of our laser, or the average wavelength of the laser. Okay, so the resolving power is it's either the wavelength over delta wavelength, or I can write that as the frequency over delta F. So I write it as the frequency over the minimum resolvable frequency. The frequency of the light divided by the minimum resolvable frequency. Delta F is the free spectral range divided by the finesse. So the finesse comes to the top, and I have the frequency divided by the free spectral range. Free spectral range is C over 2L. So I have, well, let me write it out. Now I'll write the frequency as C over lambda, and the free spectral range is C over 2L. It tells me that the resolving power is 2L over lambda times the finesse. So we said this before, the greater the finesse, the greater your resolving power. And this relation tells us specifically how big the resolving power is as a function of the finesse. So again, increasing the length of the cavity increases your resolving power. So here's a slide that describes what I just described on the board. Um, I'll point out a couple things that I didn't mention. Um, when you do this type of measurement with what's called a scanning confocal Fabry Perot, there's a term confocal, which I didn't mention before. Um, you can buy instruments, you can buy an interferometer that's built inside a tube that has this PZT built in and has uh, a driver that produces a square. You can buy this as a device. Um, from Melisgrio, from Coherent, a number of sources. Um, and it's called a spectral analyzer, or a laser modal structure analyzer, or a scanning confocal Fabry Perot. The term confocal comes from the fact that these mirrors are separated by their radius of curvature. The reason is that makes all the different transverse modes of this cavity resonate at the same frequency. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. I'm not going to go into details. 
If you studied lasers, if you took 168, you probably learned about the modal structure of a cavity. Um, essentially what it does is it makes it easy to couple light through the mirror, through the uh, device. And it ensures that um, at any given length, the frequency that you're transmitting is, uh, is uh, the same function of length regardless of the mode of the light. Okay, so one of the limitations of this is this is only practical if you have a CW source. So a continuous source. If you have a pulsed laser, um, you can't do a time-dependent measurement since the pulse isn't constant or the intensity of the laser is not constant over the time of your measurement. Okay, so this is not a useful instrument for a uh, pulsed laser. There's a sort of an equivalent experiment you can do for pulse lasers using a, a Fabri-Pro interferometer. The idea is that instead of just um, sending light that's mode matched to the cavity, you send diverging light through usually a, a thin interferometer or an etalon. And so the idea there is that Say you take a glass slide that has a high reflection coating on both sides and a lens to take your light beam and cause it to diverge. Then what you get is an interference pattern at the output, which would look like rings. Okay, so in one dimension, there's going to be some waves, let's say this center wave that's on axis happens to be resonant. So there's an integer number of half wavelengths uh, inside this thickness. Then you're going to get constructive interference. Um, but at angles that slightly deviate from that, the path length through the optic is different. And so you're not going to get the resonant condition met until the path length difference is enough that you get one more, uh, one more <coughs> wavelength resonant. And you go out a further distance, and the angle has varied by more. The path length difference has varied by more. You get another wavelength difference. And essentially what you're doing is, instead of scanning the length as a function of time, here we have the length varying as a function of angle. And so if instead of measuring a, the time-dependent output of the interferometer, you measure the spatial-dependent output by using a CCD or photographic plate here, you can do the same type of measurement. This distance corresponds to one free spectral range. And if you just have a single frequency at the input, you'll get peak intensity spaced every free spectral range. But if you had a different or a series of wavelengths on the input, those will have different free spectral ranges, and so the uh, position of the spots of the constructive interference fringes will be different. Neil? 
No, in fact, they probably wouldn't be in the center. I mean, that's So this is just an etalon. An etalon is a piece of glass coated on both sides. So functionally, it's the same as a fabric perot. The difference is it's monolithic. It's not two separate mirrors. It's just a single substrate coated on both ends. So uh, theoretically, it's the exact same thing, just functionally. If you're going to very small sizes, it's uh, a simpler device. Um, each ring, well, it depends on the, uh, so if this is a Gaussian beam, then the power distribution is going to be Gaussian here. And so the, amp the distribution of intensities should also be Gaussian. It would be very similar. To, uh, the rings you see from diffraction from a single slit can be used to infer the wavelength. If you know the diameter of the slit, same thing here, um, except that these peaks are much narrower due to the finesse of this etalon. Okay, so um, again, the higher the finesse of this, the better the resolving power because your fringes become narrower. Um, but you have a limited free spectral range. So different, different wavelengths can produce the same interference pattern. Okay, so typically the way, if you wanted to make an absolute measurement of wavelength using Fabry-Perot's, the way you might do this is shown here, where initially you have a very short etalon. So very short means the free spectral range is very large. So it can differentiate a large spread of wavelengths. But the line width is also correspondingly large. So it doesn't have very good resolution. Okay, but if it's very short, you might be able to determine the, uh, roughly what the wavelength of the light is. Okay, so to draw, let me draw on a graph what its transmission function might look like. As a function of frequency. So let's say the first etalon has a very broad free spectral range. And let's say we're interested in light that has some um, some structure around here. Right, then we could tune the etalon until that's resonant and know unambiguously the frequency that we're interested in. We might not be able to resolve the features, but because the free spectral range of the etalon might be greater than the frequency that we're interested in, we could at least unambiguously determine the wavelength range. Okay, so we would tune the etalon you can tune it by thermally, well, by heating it, for example, so that it passes those frequencies. Okay. So now we know what the frequency of our source is with some huge uncertainty. 
you could then take that same light that you're measuring with the, the very small etalon, pick off a fraction of it, and measure it with a longer etalon. That longer etalon is going to have a shorter or smaller free spectral range and a correspondingly smaller line width. So what you'd want is you'd want the free spectral range to be less than the line width of the previous etalon. And if you do that, then you can resolve features within that, that line width unambiguously. So we tune the length of that etalon until, say, this peak overlapped with, those, with that intensity light. And that would further narrow down the uh, known frequency. And then you can just continue iterating with longer and longer etalons as they turn into Fabry-Pro cavities. <coughs> until you end up with something that has a line width smaller than the structure that you're trying to measure. So eventually we have essentially a comb function. And we can sweep it across our intensity spectrum and measure that spectrum, the relative structure of that spectrum. And by keeping track of um, the length of the various etalons, that were necessary to make the, uh, the light transmit through the etalons. We could infer with increasing range and decreasing resolution what that center frequency is. Neil? Why don't we do an example? Yes. Okay. Let me skip over a couple slides here. Neil? Yes. So the pulse length has to be uh, longer than the storage time of the, uh, the etalon. OK, so let's consider something that we've seen before. The Balmer alpha line of hydrogen. This was from the second homework. We found that the Balmer lines of hydrogen, that's a second, that's a transition from n equals 3 to n equals 2. And the transition from n equals 3 to n equals 2 occurred at 656 nanometers. So you can calculate that. And if you have a mix of hydrogen and deuterium, then you get two different lines, one from hydrogen, one from deuterium. And the frequency shift of those lines we calculated to be 124 gigahertz. So let's ask how we could measure that experimentally. And so let's say we have a prism spectrometer at our disposal, a one inch, which is typical size, uh, prism made of BK7, which is a common glass. And we have a pair of mirrors that have three nines of reflectivity. It's usually specified as the power of reflectivity. R, it, no, big R is 0.999. Small R is the square root of 0.999, which would be 0.995. And so let's ask how we can use these two instruments to determine, 
to experimentally measure both of these quantities. Okay, the center wavelength for this line and the frequency splitting of the line. Which instrument would be most useful for determining the center wavelength? So which of these? We can build these mirrors, we can build a Fabry Pro cavity. Or with the spectrometer, we can use it as a spectrometer. Which one has a bigger free spectral range? Neil? The, pr the prism spectrometer, one of its big advantages is its free spectral range is it's essentially it's infinite. It's as large as it depends. There's only one. Every incident ray corresponds to a different direction of the output ray. So there is no aliasing. Is there a reason we're not just like putting the prism inside the spectral range spectrometer and making the cavity If you put the prism inside, you get loss. As you get loss, the finesse decreases dramatically. And so this 0.99, this is going to correspond to a finesse of about 3,000. If we put a prism inside of it, even if we had coded surfaces, that finesse would drop to maybe 50 or so. Okay, so yeah, there is a reason why we, we don't put the prism inside. OK, so let's use the prism spectrometer. And we had an expression for the maximum resolving power of a prism spectrometer. So recall that our spectrometer would look something like this. So light goes in, it illuminates from a slit, spreads out, goes through the prism, gets focused, and we can tilt the prism such that the light goes through the final output slit. And by reading off the angle that we had to tilt the prism, that's going to correspond to the uh, wavelength as different wavelengths. We'll get focused to different points in the transverse plane. So the maximum resolution looked like g dn d lambda, where g was this, the base of the grating. And we can calculate these things. Uh, we have a one inch equilateral prism, so we know g. G is 0.254 meters. DND lambda, we can look up for BK7 glass. And it's in the notes. Uh, back when we talked about prism spectrometers, I put in a table that was from Demtroder. It's also in Demtroder. So you can look it up um, at, uh, at a wavelength close to that. There's only a couple values for different wavelengths in the table. DND lambda is minus 4.6 times 10 to the minus fifth. change in the index of refraction per nanometer. So we can plug in those values. And we get a maximum resolving power of about 1170. Okay, now that's the maximum resolving power, but remember, um, in order to achieve that, we need an infinitely thin slit, which doesn't let any light through. So we said that the practical resolving power 
is when the slit is wide enough such that its diffraction pattern uh, is just large enough to illuminate the grating, and that resulted in having practical resolving power of one-third of the max. Okay. Can someone explain what this tells us about our ability to resolve in wavelength? If I want to figure out the minimum feature that I can measure, yeah. Delta lambda is, and you can express that relationship in many ways, but it tells me what fraction of my wavelength I can resolve. Okay, so we're interested in seeing two features that are separated by 124 gigahertz. We can convert that 124 gigahertz into wavelength difference and see if this is enough, sense enough, enough to resolve it. So what we have is 600 and, let me say 656.3 nanometer divided by 390. It's about 1.5 nanometer of resolution. Okay, so we could measure the center wavelength, not to this many significant digits, but close. So we could get a reasonable res measurement of the uh, center wavelength of this transition using the prism spectrometer. We might ask if we can differentiate this line or distinguish that line. So recall delta lambda over lambda is delta f over f. Or delta lambda is, I guess, uh, So I can plug in 124 gigahertz for delta F, C, and then the, the center wavelength of 656 nanometers. I believe that works out to 0.17 nanometers. That's the wavelength difference of the two different Balmer lines from the different uh, isotopes. Okay, so it's about. Uh, the features we're trying to resolve are about 10 times smaller than the resolution of our instrument. So we're not going to be able to resolve the two individual lines this way. Yes, you can. And if you can count the fringes as you go, then you can know how many you can make it even easier using a scanning Michelson interferometer. You could use a scanning Michelson interferometer. And in order to have a resolution of less than 0.17 nanometers, you would need a resolving power of 3860. So remember, about 10 times greater than this in order to resolve a feature that's about one-tenth the size. 
So we need a resolving power of 3860, and we had an expression that the resolving power was delta L over lambda. Delta L is, delta L is actually twice the distance that we moved the mirror. Okay, so plugging in that value for R, our known wavelength, we'd find delta L is 2.5 millimeters. So we only need to move the, the, the uh, mirror by a little over a millimeter. When we do that, we're going to count 3,860 fringes. So if you can keep track of the 3,860 fringes as you scan the interferometer, and you also know how far you moved it, then you can, uh, then you can measure both of those quantities. Okay. And so just as an aside, what you'd see so scanning Michelson interferometer, mirror one, mirror two, detector, and then our, our hydrogen's, hydrogen source. If we measure on the detector when both mirrors are the same distance, then both frequencies will add up constructively. So our relative output looked like cosine squared pi delta L over lambda. So if delta L is 0, it doesn't matter what your wavelength is, you're getting a maximum in your output. Okay, so as a function of delta L, initially we'd see 0, or we'd see a maximum, and then it would cycle through fringes. When we scan far enough, then one wavelength would produce constructive interference and the other one's producing destructive. And as a result, this interference pattern would wash out. And as you keep going, they eventually drift back in phase. And once we've gone 1.25 millimeters, they would have gone from both wavelengths being in, producing an interference pattern which is in phase to being out of phase to being in phase. In this case, we scanned over one more wavelength for one of the wavelengths than we have for the other. Okay, at this point in the middle. Okay. Yeah, if they're equal intensity, this point in the middle will be zero. If they're not, it'll be some reduced relative amplitude. But it'll still be uh, reduced relative to the contrast you have out here. So when you scan a distance such that the number of wavelengths that you've gone for one wavelength is a half greater than the number of wavelengths you've gone for the other, then they will be a half a wavelength out of phase. So in one wavelength is adding up to produce constructive interference, the other one's adding up to produce destructive interference, and vice versa. When the other one produces constructive, the other one produces destructive, and essentially as you're scanning, you get little change in the total in intensity. And as you keep scanning, once you've gone a distance such that one wave, one wavelength 
has traveled some number of wavelengths in the given path length difference. The other wavelength has traveled that number plus one or that number minus one. Then they will be adding up constructively at the same time again and destructively at the same time. And you see these fringes. And this pattern will repeat in this distance, then. Um, so this distance here tells you about the average frequency, and this distance tells you about the frequency difference. The average frequency being that is 6 over 6, right? Yes. Right. You could also use a Fabry-Perot. Um, so Fabry-Perot would need to have a free spectral range of more than 124 gigahertz. That is to say, the, uh, the adjacent peaks of the response need to be separated by more than the size of the structure you're trying to measure. So that when you scan across, you're only scanning one peak across the spectrum. But the line width needs to be less than 124 gigahertz in order to resolve the two. Okay, so that sets some constraints on the length. If the length is too long, then the uh, free spectral range is too small, and you're going to have multiple peaks um, overlapping the part of the spectrum you want to see. If the length is too short, then the, pre then the line width is too large to resolve them. Okay, so that range of lengths turns out to be from about 10 microns to uh, 1.2 millimeters. I didn't put the 10 microns up on the slide, but. So 1.2 millimeters isn't undoable. You might not do two separate mirrors. You might just take like a one millimeter slide and coat both sides of the slide to make an etalon. And so for an etalon that is, for example, one millimeter thick, you'd have 150 gigahertz free spectral range. So you have adjacent peaks separated by 150 gigahertz. You're going to sweep them across some structure which is 124 gigahertz wide. So as you sweep it through one free spectral range, you'll sweep across the structure. And now the line width needs to be less than 124 gigahertz. But the line width, the line width, I don't quite have it. The line width is the free spectral range over the finesse. So if the free spectral range is 150, the finesse only needs to be slightly larger than one in order for the line width to be sufficiently small. So pretty much any, any coding you put on the, the etalon will provide sufficient resolution. Okay, so you could measure the separation. You could assume that the center was accurately measured using the uh, first measurement and that the separation was measured using the second. What's that? The prism spectrometer can measure the center wavelength, and then the, the Fabry-Pro or the scanning confocal interferometer could measure the wavelength separation. Okay, so summarizing, this is all of the uh, discussion of detectors. Um, there's different types of photodetectors. There's ones that transform individual photons into electrons that can be measured electrically. There's ones that use the power in a beam to heat up some object so that you can measure its temperature. Um, depending on your application, 
determines which detector is optimal. The thermal detectors can handle high power. They, can, uh, they don't saturate. They're spectrally consistent, so they don't have a spectral response that changes. Um, the photodiodes are small and fast and cheap, uh, but they can't handle high power as well. Photomultiplier tubes are good for single photon detection. And then measuring wavelength, you can use prisms and grading spectrometers to do coarse wavelength measurements and unambiguously determine the, uh, the wavelength of some structures, but they don't have the resolving power of interferometers. So you can, use, you can supplement those measurements with interferometers, or if you only need to measure like wavelength separation between lines but don't care about the absolute wavelength, you can neglect the spectrometers altogether and just use interferometers, uh, like we talked about today, to make measurements of, uh, of fine structure on an optical beam. Okay, so we have a test on Wednesday. Open book, open note, open everything. Um, I guess everything except internet. We'll restrict it in some sense. Uh, do the practice exam. That's going to be really good practice. If you can handle the practice exam, you're in great shape. Um, and I'll come in a little early, or I'll be available at least from 6 o'clock if you have questions before the exam. Um, so stop by my office with questions if you have them.